The following message is by Pastor Steve Lee of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emmanuelcommunity.org. Good morning, ICC. We are continuing on in our Bible Project series. Um, And before we cover today's topic of exile, why don't you join with me in a word of prayer? Father, as we continue to look at these broad themes of, um, found throughout your scriptures, we ask that there would be a real sense of understanding of um, the story that you are telling of humanity and redemption and, and what you are asking of each one of us as a response to these stories that we're hearing. And so even today as we talk about this idea of exile, may you grant to us an understanding of how Exile relates to uh, not only the history that we enter into, but also the call on our lives of what it means to be exiles in this world. And so we invite uh, the Spirit's work to be done in our hearts in this moment as we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Let me begin the message today by saying that um, I never really thought very much about my identity as an American until uh, we moved overseas to serve as missionaries in Kenya. And I had, uh, up to that point in my life, taken for granted so many aspects of American life and culture. But living overseas, I found myself really unexpectedly homesick. And I ended up discovering that I was missing so much about life in America, from American television to American restaurants, American shopping centers, uh, even, (laughs) strangely enough, um, American toilets, uh, because uh, the British, uh, who the Kenyans have modeled their toilets after, um, just don't know how to design toilets. You know, the, um, um, I don't know, I don't want to go into all the details, but um, the fill level is too low. And when you flush, it just is the torrent of water that just comes rushing down rather than this gentle swirl. And so I, I just found myself oddly missing American toilets. I would go through these seasons of intense food cravings, everything from uh, Chicago-style deep-dish pizza to authentic Mexican tacos to just Cheetos. Um, and, I, and when we visited the U.S. Embassy, Uh, I remember almost breaking down in tears because it was as if I was suddenly transported back to America. I mean, everything in that embassy is American, from the furniture to the electrical outlets to the television shows and magazines that are in the waiting rooms. But the strange thing is that once I got back to the U.S., uh, I discovered this reverse homesickness for Kenya the warm Kenyan greetings, uh, the lively worship services with these Kenyan choirs, uh, the beautiful mountains that surrounded us, uh, the delicious roasted chicken and the grilled goat meat. Um, and, and here is another aspect of how this played out in my life is that I've also experienced the same uh, feelings of longing when I watch Korean dramas. When I first started watching them, which is a little over a year ago, um, I was caught off guard by these, this unexpected homesickness that these 
K-dramas began to stir in me. Uh, and I was surprised by how they were moving me emotionally in a way that American shows just never really had. Uh, I moved from Korea to the U.S. when I was four years old. And these dramas were awakening memories of a homeland that, strangely, I, I barely even knew. Uh, back when I preached this really brief series called Homecoming, when we first moved here to Our Savior, uh, I mentioned that the Welsh have this interesting term, and it's called hiraith. And I, I hope I'm pronouncing that right. I, I think you're supposed to roll the R, but it's hiraith. And it refers to a homesickness for a home to which you cannot return. Another way to describe this word is a deep sense of nostalgia or yearning, even grief for the lost places of your past, a past that, in fact, may not truly have actually ever existed. What the Welsh have put a finger on is something that I think everyone, regardless of your cultural background, can identify with. It's the longing for something that we call home, a place that we all understand in our hearts, even if we've never fully experienced it in our own lives. And through the current series, we're exploring some of the major themes and storylines that run throughout the length of the entire Bible. And one that is often neglected is this theme of exile, which is unfortunate because it is actually one of the most important themes in the Bible. God created the Garden of Eden as a home for Adam and Eve to experience a life of peace and flourishing in his presence. And the garden was a place where Adam and Eve were naked and unashamed. It was truly home because it was a place where they could be fully known and yet fully loved and accepted. But then they ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And that decision was a choice to reject God and his wisdom, his leadership over their lives. They would, as they determined it, live life on their own terms. They would decide their own truth and determine what was right and wrong for themselves. And as a result, the rejection of God, of this rejection of God, they were cast out from the garden. And from that point forward, exile will be the enduring part of the human condition. Our world is not the way it's supposed to be. And inside all of us is a longing for a return to the home that we had in the garden. Jen Pollock Michelle writes, Home was one of humanity's first gifts. I've become convinced that what happens from Genesis to Revelation can be told as a home story. God makes a home. Sinners take leave. And the Father bids our return. To be human is to know the grief of some paradise lost. Each of us, however happily settled, suffers a foreboding sense of rupture, as if we have been cut off from some hidden source of happiness. Home represents humanity's most visceral ache and our oldest desire. The Old Testament is filled with stories of exile. Cain exiled from his family after murdering his brother Abel. 
Abraham separated from his family and wandering as an exile in the wilderness. Joseph sold into slavery by his own brothers and living as a foreigner in exile in Egypt. But by far the most important of these stories is that of Israel itself. After hundreds of years, God had finally fulfilled his promise to Abraham to make him a great nation and to give, him, uh, give his descendants a home, a land that they could call their own where they could flourish. But before they entered the promised land, Moses spoke to the people to make sure that they understood what God expected of them once they took possession of it. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 1, it says, Now Israel, hear, hear the decrees and laws I am about to teach you. Follow them so that you may live and may go in and take possession of the land the Lord, the God of your ancestors, is giving you. And he continues in verses 5 through 8. See, I have taught you decrees and laws as the Lord my God commanded me, so that you may follow them in the land you are entering to take possession of it. Observe them carefully, for this will show your wisdom and understanding to the nations, who will hear about all these decrees and say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. What other nation is so great as to have their gods near them the way the Lord our God is near us whenever we pray to him? And what other nation is so great as to have such righteous decrees and laws as this body of laws I am setting before you today. Do you see the parallels between what's happening here in Deuteronomy and what happened in the Garden of Eden? Because the parallels are striking. In the Garden, humans were invited to live in God's presence, thriving under his wisdom and leadership. But rather than trusting God, they rejected him. And as a result, they were exiled from the garden. Now God is taking his exiled people and bringing them to a home called the promised land to dwell among them and guide them with his wisdom through the law. But what he required of them is to trust and obey him and worship him alone. This is a, a picture of God reversing in some ways what had happened in the garden when Adam and Eve rejected him. But God warned them that living in the promised land was not an unconditional guarantee for Israel. If they in fact didn't remain faithful to him, the consequence would be, interestingly, exile. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 25 through 28, after you have had children and grandchildren and have lived in the land a long time, if you then become corrupt and make any kind of idol, doing evil in the eyes of the Lord your God and arousing his anger, I call the heavens and the earth as witnesses against you this day that you will quickly perish from the land that you are crossing the Jordan to possess. You will not live there long, but will certainly be destroyed. The Lord will scatter you among the peoples, and only a few of you will survive among the nations to which the Lord will drive you. There you will worship man-made gods of wood and stone which cannot see or hear or eat or smell. And sure enough, the Israelites didn't remain faithful to God. And true to his word, he sent them into exile. 
The northern kingdom of Israel was defeated and exiled by the empire of Assyria. And then about 140 years later, the southern kingdom of Judah was exiled to Babylon. And I think it's too simplistic to see this as only a punishment for disobedience. I think there is also a danger of seeing God as the one that is causing all of the problems here. Since he is the one that is sending the people into exile. But if I could try to reframe the whole situation like this. Imagine if your teenage child were to say to you, Listen, mom, dad, I have no problems living in this house, eating your food, using your internet, etc. But from now on, I'm going to live by my own rules. I'm going to go when I want, come and go when I want, eat, drink, and smoke what I want, stay on my devices as long as I want, Share my bed with whoever I want. So don't try to tell me what to do. Can I ask you, as a parent, how long would you put up with a situation like that in your household? You see, a home is so much more than just putting a roof over your heads. It's supposed to be a place of comfort and security where children can thrive under the loving care and wisdom of their parents. But in order to experience this, there has to be a trust and submission by these children to the parents' wisdom and authority. And it's same in our relationship with God. The 2018 movie, Beautiful Boy, is based on a true story of New York Times writer David Sheff. And his efforts to help his son, Nick, who battled with a decade-long addiction to crystal meth. And it's painful to witness David doing everything in his power to try to save his son. From calling local hospitals and driving through seedy neighborhoods in search of his lost son. Trying to do everything he can to research drug addiction, so that through that knowledge, he would be able to help his son. And even to the extreme measure of trying these drugs himself in an effort to understand what his son was experiencing. But he eventually comes to the painful realization that the more he tries to rescue his son, the more he only ends up enabling him to continue on in this Destructive drug addiction. And in a gut-wrenching scene, right after his girlfriend almost dies and ODs, Nick, living on the streets, begs his father, Dad, let me come home. Please let me come home. I need to come home, he pleads. But David marshals all of his willpower and tells him, No. And hangs up the phone. You see, this wasn't the end of David's love for Nick. But one of the most difficult and painful expressions of it imaginable. Exiling the ones you love always is. As David hugs Nick at his college dorm room, as they say their goodbyes, David says to his son, 
everything. To which Nick replies back, everything. Only later in the movie, we find out through a flashback the meaning of this exchange that they had with each other. David tells in that flashback a much younger Nick as he says goodbye at the airport. Do you know how much I love you? If you could take all the words in the language, it still wouldn't describe how much I love you. And if you could gather all those words together, it still wouldn't describe what I feel for you. What I feel for you is everything. I love you more than everything. That's what he was telling his son when he whispered everything. You see, exile is the human condition because we have turned our backs on God and have rejected his loving care and wisdom over our lives. In other words, we have rejected God's offer of home, choosing instead our own path, our own wisdom. And that is why exile is the only logical result of our rejection of God. Exile is God's love expressed in discipline, inviting us to reconsider the error of our ways and turn back to him. According to the Bible, the problem of exile isn't primarily political or geographic, but spiritual. After 70 years of exile in Babylon, God's people were finally able to return to their homeland of Israel. But simply returning to their homeland wasn't enough. You see, because God wanted their hearts. And during that time, he spoke through his prophet Joel in Joel chapter 2, verse 12 through 13. Even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. Rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love, and he relents from sending calamity. You know what's so interesting to me about this passage in Joel is that God is the one that sent them into exile. And not only that, but his people have now returned from exile to the promised land. But nevertheless, he still pleads with them, return to me, return to me. In other words, in God's perspective, the exile still was not truly over. You still haven't found your way back home yet to me. And sadly, even after returning from the Babylonian exile, the hearts of the Israelites still hadn't returned back to God. Another post-exilic prophet, Malachi, says in chapter 1, verse 6 to 8, A son honors his father and a slave his master. If I am a father, where is the honor due me? If I am a master, where is the respect due me? Says the Lord Almighty. It is you, priests, who show contempt for my name. But you ask, how have we shown contempt for your name? By offering defiled food on my altar. But you ask, how have we defiled you? By saying that the Lord's table is contemptible. When you offer blind animals for sacrifice, is that not wrong? When you sacrifice lame or diseased animals, is that not wrong? 
try offering them to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you, says the Lord Almighty. You see, the people had returned home and sacrifices were once again being burnt on the altars of the rebuilt temple. But the lame and diseased animals that they were offering to God revealed how far their hearts were still from God. In fact, as I said in an earlier message, the glory of God's presence never reappeared in this new temple. And Israel still remained under the control of foreign powers who occupied the promised land. Israel, in other words, was still essentially in exile. The Israelites saw exile as an external problem created by other nations. But God saw exile as an internal problem caused by their sin. And this is the historic setting into which Jesus would enter the world as Messiah. And in order to understand Jesus' mission, we have to understand this theme of exile, which fills the pages of the Old Testament. Because now, as we fast forward to Jesus, what we can say is this. Through the cross, Jesus reconciled our broken relationship with God, providing the solution to Israel and ultimately humanity's exile. You see, Israel was looking for a Messiah who would set them free from the Roman occupiers. But Jesus came to reconcile them as well as the whole world with God. And one of the ways that Jesus explains his mission was through the parable of the prodigal son. It is a story of a son who despite having all the comfort and security of a loving home rejected his father in pursuit of what he thought was a better life in a far country. And having publicly humiliated his father and squandered his entire inheritance on wild living and now feeding unclean pigs in order to survive, the prodigal son knows full well that he has destroyed every hope of ever returning home. That homecoming is out of the picture. You see, the prodigal son is a story about exile. And starving to death, he hatches a plan to return home in the hopes of being hired as a worker in his father's estate. But before he can get into that lame attempt at negotiating a homecoming, while he was still far away, we're told, the father runs to his son and restores the broken relationship with love and mercy and forgiveness, receiving him back not as a servant, but as a true son. And commenting on this behavior of the father, Kenneth Bailey writes, the father takes the bottom edge of his long robes in his hand and runs to welcome his pig-herding son. He falls on his neck and kisses him before hearing, his pre- before hearing his prepared speech. The father does not demonstrate love in response to his son's confession. Rather, out of his own compassion, he empties himself, assuming the form of a servant, and runs to reconcile his estranged son. Traditional Middle Easterners wearing long robes do not run in public 
to do so is deeply humiliating. This father runs. The repeated humiliations endured by the father in this story foreshadows the humiliation that Jesus himself would endure on the cross for our sins. The cross is Jesus' message not only to Israel but to all of us. I love you. You are forgiven. Come home. In other words, the only way out of exile and back home into the Father's arms is through the cross. In his final week before dying on the cross, Jesus entered Jerusalem and lamented for the city that he loved. In Matthew 23, 37 to 38, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you. How often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings and you were not willing. Look, your house is left to you desolate. See, the problem of exile wasn't God, but his people who stubbornly rejected him despite his longing to gather them under his wing. I mentioned this before, but it bears repeating because it is so important. Of all the Old Testament holidays that God could have connected with the cross in order to explain its meaning, you would think that he would have chosen the Day of Atonement, in Hebrew known as Yom Kippur. After all, this was one day a year when the high priest would enter into the Holy of Holies in order to make atonement for the sins of the nation. But instead of choosing the Day of Atonement, God chose Passover as the holiday to connect to the cross. And Passover is a story about Israel's deliverance from exile in Egypt to the promised land. That's why at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, he quotes Isaiah 61, declaring that he has come to fulfill God's promise to set the oppressed free and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, essentially ending Israel's long history of exile. You see, Jesus did what Adam and Eve couldn't do, what Israel couldn't do, what we cannot do for ourselves, rescuing us from exile by paying the penalty of our sin and reconciling us to God. That's why Paul says in Romans chapter 5, verse 1 to 2, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. That's what Christ has done for us, delivering us from exile and returning us to God. But here's the thing. You would think that the message of the New Testament after the Gospels would be that because of what Jesus accomplished on the cross, uh, exile is no longer a reality for Christians. But the New Testament writers transform the theme of exile 
for believers as one of being set apart in the world. Rather than responding with humility and repentance to our exiled status, the response throughout human history has been one of rebellion and pride, expressed in a desire to establish our own kingdom rather than to submit to God's kingship. Genesis chapter 11 verse 4 captures this dynamic when it says, Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered over the face of the whole earth. You see, as a reaction of the exile from the garden, they now felt insecure, unstable. And so humanity's reaction was to build a city with a tower that, quote, reaches to the heavens. And what's interesting is that the location of this city is in an area called the plains of Shinar which is in modern-day Iraq, which in the Bible times was known as Babylon. You see, the tower name was Babel. And although in English we make a distinction between Babel and the word Babylon, in the Hebrew Bible, they're actually the same word, Babel. It refers to the Tower of Babel as well as the nation or the city of Babylon. They're identical in the Hebrew. Throughout the Bible, Babylon becomes the symbol of humanity's attempt to establish its own counter-kingdoms against the kingdom of God. And this will be a theme that runs through the length of the entire Bible. In fact, when you get to the very last book in the Bible, John talks about how Babylon is still very much a reality in our world. In Revelation chapter 17, verse 3 to 5, it says, Then the angel carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness. There I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was covered with blasphemous names and had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was dressed in purple and scarlet and was glittering with gold, precious stones, and pearls. She held a golden cup in her hand, filled with abominable things and the filth of her adulteries. The name written on her forehead was a mystery. Babylon, the great, the mother of prostitutes and of the abominations of the earth. In the book of Revelation, Babylon shows up again and again as a symbol of the worldly powers that stand against God and his kingdoms. So then what should be God's people's response to Babylon? You would think that the command would be to condemn it and stay as far away from it as possible. But the Bible's teaching on our relationship with Babylon is actually far more nuanced and complex than that. Look at what Jeremiah says in chapter 29, verse 4 to 7. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. 
Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Also, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. That's Babylon. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. You see, although they were expected to continue to obey God's law and remain distinct as God's chosen people, God tells them not to resist the exile in Babylon but to actually seek the peace or the shalom and the prosperity of Babylon. Because he says, as that city prospers, you too will prosper. Because you are to be participants in that society. And what we need to say is that that command requires an incredible amount of wisdom and discernment. We see Daniel and his friends Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego live out Jeremiah's command when they go to Babylon. You know, they were given Babylonian names. What I find really curious is that we continue to refer to Daniel by his Jewish name, but then we refer to his friends by their Babylonian names, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And I'm not sure how that happened, but that just sort of became the history of it. But they were given Babylonian names. And they served in King Nebuchadnezzar's court. And Daniel would even come to become a close friend and an advisor to the king of Babylon. And yet, when the entire kingdom was required to bow to this huge golden statue or image, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refused to worship it. And as a result, were thrown into a fiery furnace, although God rescued them from it. And then when a law was passed that forbid anyone in Babylon from praying to any god or any person other than King Nebuchadnezzar, Daniel refused to obey that law. But he continued to pray to God as was his habit. And as a result of that, he was thrown into a lion's den. Although once again, God saved him. But that is the complex picture of what it means to be God's people living in the midst of Babylon. Unless you think that that was only an Old Testament principle, we see that same truth affirmed in the New Testament. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11 to 17, Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to the governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God. Honor the emperor. You see, Peter calls believers to submit 
to the earthly authorities and to live closely enough with those outside the church that we can be a witness to them. We are, in other words, not supposed to create a separatist movement, but to engage in wise and meaningful ways with the world around us, just like Daniel and his friends did in Babylon. At the same time, though, we are also called to guard ourselves from the dangerous influences that surround us. Babylon, in other words, can basically be seen as humanity's attempt to make a home in this world on its own terms without God in the picture. But doing this will always lead to idolatries, trying to find ultimate meaning in the things of this world, which in the end will only break our hearts. And so Peter warns us to be watchful for the ways in which these sinful desires can constantly uh, attempt to take root in our hearts. In other words, what Peter is saying is we're all living in Babylon and the power of Babylon is real. And so we have to be vigilant that we don't embrace the values of Babylon. The picture that the Bible paints is one of both loyalty and subversion. We need to obey earthly authorities that are placed over us and engage meaningfully with the broader culture, the broader society. But as followers of Jesus, we must never lose our prophetic voice to the world. That's why a few messages ago, when I was speaking about the election, I was sharing how disturbed I was by how the church was reacting and responding to it. Whether you are aligned with the Democrats or the Republicans, the worry is that we are making idolatry of politics and aligning ourselves too close with a political platform. Whether it's for or against what's happening in the White House right now. What we need to do is to preserve our distinctive prophetic voice in every generation. One of the great gifts of the cross of Jesus is that he has transformed the meaning of exile from one of loss and despair to one of hope. Rather than being tempted by Babylon, we ought to speak a word of hope in Jesus to all those who have been left brokenhearted by all of the failed promises of the kingdoms of this world. Let me close with this. Jen Pollock Michel, in her book Keeping Place, says perhaps our common grief of crossing borders, mourning death, lamenting strained relationships, and generally feeling earth's ill fit is a severe mercy. No doubt it helps us understand that home is not now, not yet. The longing for home is associated with memory. A paradise was, in fact, lost. Home helps us outlast our sufferings. We can admit our disappointments, grieve our losses, but recognize with stubborn joy that they are temporary. When seasons of unwanted singleness or infertility persist, when our marriages end, when a child dies, 
when the doctor delivers an unwanted diagnosis, we remember this earth is the lineup to the real event. And grief is one sure symptom of exile. The story of the Bible, the story of the Bible witnesses to the happy ending called home. For despite the human experience of estrangement in this middle act of the drama, the good news of the Christian gospel begins and ends with homecoming. Our anxiety to belong, our desire to be received, our hope for intimate embrace. He seeks and saves the wandering lost. And that's the message that the Bible tells us. We are exiles on this earth. But it is because we know that life as we experience it right now is not our final destiny. Our exile is an exile of hope, longing for the day when we will take part in a renewed creation at the restoration of all things. And may we, as God's people, bear witness to this hope to a lost and dying world. Let's come before the Lord in prayer at this time. And we're going to end in some closing worship. But before we do that, can I just invite you to come before the Lord in prayer? And as you think about the disappointments and the heartbreak of life on this earth, and as you think about that longing for a place that you can really call home, my sincere hope is that you would understand that we are not home yet, but that there is a renewal of this earth that is yet to come because of what Christ accomplished on the cross. And so may we guard our hearts from being wooed by the things of this world and all of its false promises with which it tempts us. And may we realize as the people of God that there is a real and genuine hope that we have in the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray and then we'll just close in some worship in just a moment.